A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Yehuda Gabber with Jewish History Soundbites. And uh, this episode today, I'm going to speak about the early centuries of, in the modern era, um, where the beginning of the Enlightenment, the beginning of secularization, um, explore a little bit about some myths uh, involving that and some misconceptions, and what you know, what about the how the secularization of the Jewish people took place in the modern era? Just obviously touching on the topic, it's a huge topic. Before I get to it, there's been. Tons more feedback that I'm getting still on that uh, review I did on the Ken Burns documentary about the United States and the Holocaust. It's apparently a very hot topic, and I keep on getting more, so it's wonderful. It's good that it's generating interest in both um, positive reviews and critique, because that means people are interested in the topic. One of the uh, most knowledgeable people I know uh, on this topic is... A friend of mine and a dedicated listener of Jewish History Soundbites, who ironically I met for the first time in Treblinka, of all places. I know that sounds kind of weird, but um, he's quite an authority on the topic, and he um, wanted to once again correct me about the regarding regarding the plane uh, bombings, that about pinpoint bombings, and how in certain ways it may have been possible, and they should have bombed, and It's obviously very speculative and very debatable and how much it would have accomplished, but I'm willing to concede the issue that there's more room for debate than I initially uh, led on to to say. Um, Another listener shared with me um, an interview that Ken Burns himself did on the Freakonomics uh, podcast with Stephen Levitt, and uh, you might want to check that out as well. Um, very, very interesting interview. The first half, the second half is just about his career as a documentary filmmaker, so only if that interests you, but the first half of the interview is him discussing behind uh, the, the the whole documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, so I found that very interesting as well. And another listener shared that Dr. Raphael Madoff um, had significant critique of the Ken Burns documentary and wrote about it and spoke about it. And there's some uh, stuff out there if you want to check his critique on the Ken Burns documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. 
One of the things that Ken Burns uh, mentioned was, you know, I feel, I feel like all this is good because and healthy because it generates interest in the topic and will all be more enriched as a result. So I think any anyone, you know, positive critique, it's all good. It means that the, the only thing that wouldn't be good is ignoring the topic. So whatever it is. One of the things that Ken Burns mentioned in his interview on that uh, on that podcast was that how important basic facts about the Holocaust are now going to be understood, aside from the fact the U.S. role, just you know, br- bringing bringing the very story of the Holocaust itself to the fore. And the example that he gave was that um, you know that that people didn't realize how. Um, the the Holocaust took place. The the final solution, the mass murder of the Jews, took place in two main places. In the in the, by when the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in the Nazi occupied areas of the Soviet Union, in all these mass graves, Kivrei Achim, in the outskirts of towns, thousands of towns across the landscape of the Nazi occupied Soviet Union, where. Well over a million and a half Jews uh, were killed, were victims of the Holocaust, mass murder, Einsatzgruppen and their collaborators. And the and then in the death camps that the Nazis established in Nazi-occupied Poland, the six death camps, uh, Chelemno, Treblinka, Sobibor, Belzec, and then the two camps that were both death camps and concentration camps, and that's, of course, Majdanek and Auschwitz-Birkenau. So that's where the Holocaust takes place in in those those areas and and all the other stories of the Holocaust, the ghettos and the concentration camps, a very very small minority of the murder of the Jews took place. That was one of the points he brought, and I thought to myself when I heard that, wow, it's so interesting that the American general population uh, wasn't aware of that basic fact about the Holocaust. Um, and then I got the Mishpacha magazine this past week. And there was an article, of course, the For the Record column was fantastic. And uh, my friend Srili Besser had a very, very nice article on Reb David Feinstein and his new book, which I recommend you get and you purchase because it's an excellent book. And there's loads of great articles, as usual, in the Mishpacha magazine. And towards the end of the magazine, there was a short article about uh, some Holocaust story, which overall was an interesting story and um, um, a liberator, an American soldier who was a liberator of a camp, and he met up with uh, with a a, uh, a survivor who had been liberated in that camp. Uh, but there was some things that disturbed me in the article. I'm not going to go through everything. I'm just going to, you know, cite one of one passage which really, really disturbed me. And I'm going to use this platform of the of my podcast to vent a little bit, which I don't think I do that often. So. I'm going to trouble everyone to listen through it even before we get to today's topic. Um, Here, I'm going to quote from it. I'm going to read a passage from the magazine itself. Frightened but determined, they continued onward toward the horrific smell and came across barbed wire fences, another camp. It was a sub-camp of Mauthausen called the Gunskirchenlager. Gunskirchen was something far worse than even Auschwitz. It was a death camp. That's the end of the paragraph I want to read. So most readers of this paragraph would be quite surprised to find out that a camp they had never heard of was even worse than Auschwitz, and it was a death camp. So 
Just as a quick reminder, Auschwitz-Birkenau was a death camp as well. It was both a concentration camp and a death camp. I'm assuming most people are aware of that. There was at least four gas chambers uh, in use at Birkenau. A million Jews were killed there in the gas chambers. It was the biggest death camp of the entire Holocaust. I thought this was kind of like basic stuff that people knew. And Gunskirchen, um, as bad as it was, first of all, it was only around for about a month. It started to be built in December of 1944. It was finished in April, uh, and it was opened in April 1945, pretty much the end of the war. Um, uh, about 17,000 Jews were brought there on, from, on death marches, mostly Hungarian Jews from, uh, from other concentration camps at the end of the war were brought there on death marches in a very bad condition after starvation, terrible t- um, experiences that they had on the death marches, and a couple of thousand uh, Jews uh, from that group died in the camp from starvation and typhus and illness during the last days of the war and in the days immediately following liberation. It's liberated on May 4th by the American army, uh, by soldiers from the American army. So, so this it, it existed for a month. It was a concentration camp. Uh, it was supposed to be a concentration camp. It didn't really serve any function. It wasn't around that long. Um, it definitely was not a death camp, definitely had no gas chambers, definitely no mass murder or mass uh, uh, transports arrived there, um, and and uh, and uh, just the numbers, there weren't that many people there altogether. Um, so, and it's in Austria, uh, the Nazis didn't make any death camps in Austria, all their death camps that they built were in uh, occupied Poland, and death sites, uh, places where they killed Jews in the occupied Soviet Union. There were no death camps in Austria or Germany. There were concentration camps. There were over a thousand concentration camps that the Nazis established in Nazi-occupied Europe. There were only six death camps and many, many death sites where they shot Jews in the Soviet Union. Um, Of course, all death camps and death sites were liberated by the Red Army, by the Soviets. Not a single one was liberated by the Americans um, because the Soviets were in the Soviet Union and in Poland and in Eastern Germany. The Americans only liberated Western Germany and Austria. So they liberated a handful of concentration camps, but they never liberated a single death camp. So how can a mistake... By the way, all this information you don't have to do big research for. You don't have to read Yehuda Bauer or Christopher Browning or any other Holocaust scholars. You can find it in about 45 seconds on Wikipedia. Um, So it really bothers me that mistakes like these are made uh, still today in today's day and age. And such basic, basic information about the Holocaust, which were always so, you know, we, we, we want that people should have Holocaust education and awareness and, and, uh, and you know, we don't want anti-Semitism. It would help that if we knew about the Holocaust as well, at least the basic uh, information. In any event, so I think I'm done venting for now. And please give me feedback. Am I out of line for this, uh, this venting, uh, for, this, uh, for this critique, for this expectation? Um, do you think it was correct for me to do so? I'd love to hear from the listeners as well. Now let's get on uh, to today's topic. Um, the, there's this assumption out there that the secularization of the Jewish people begins in Central Europe in the 18th century, towards the end of the 18th century, 
And in Eastern Europe, only in the 19th century, towards the end of the 19th century, really, even the beginning of the 20th in some areas, and that until the mid-1700s, the Jewish people were all um, observant. They're all observant of halachic Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, except for the Karaites, of course. The Karaites did not observe uh, rabbinic Judaism, but that's that's a different story. So there's this assumption out there, and that there's this centrality of Germany, and specifically Berlin, and specifically the personality of Moses Mendelssohn and his disciples and his his chabura, his group in Berlin during the mid-18th century that begins the Jewish Enlightenment, the Jewish Haskalah, and eventually that leads to secularization, it leads to assimilation, it leads to reform, it leads to all kinds of movements which uh, define the Jewish people in the modern era. And it starts there. There's this, uh, there's this idea out there. And I feel like it's, it's, it's um, a bit of a mistake and, and it's something to talk about. Um, and, uh, and, and therefore, I want to explore this today, how in the centuries before Mendelssohn, there already was this movement towards enlightenment and secularization in the Jewish people and explain uh, why and how that happened and how that's an important piece of history to understand where we are today. Now, I want to make a clarification and a disclaimer. Secularization has, secularization, excuse me, has always been around in antiquity, in, in, in the exile to Bavel after the first Beis HaMikdash, during the time of the second Beis HaMikdash, the Hellenization. I mean, we're around Hanukkah time right now. It's very appropriate. Uh, the 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 secularization of the Jewish people during the time of the second Beis Hamikdash, during the time of Hanukkah, and afterwards was quite prevalent, and and uh, and of course afterwards also. Um, so there were different periods of secularization throughout Jewish history, but I'm focusing on the modern era, and the modern era begins approximately 500 years ago, and um, so it's accepted to say that until. The 1700s, uh, almost the entire people, Jewish people, was Torah observant, like I said. Um, and today, unfortunately, most of the Jewish people are not. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but you ask the people who are involved in Jewish outreach, and they'll tell you the exact numbers. Um, and uh, and but it's uh, I think it's I think it's a, it's pretty much accepted that the overwhelming majority of of uh, the Jewish people are not. Torah observant in the traditional rabbinic Judaism. Um, so the big question of the modern era is how did that happen? So in order to get a better, better picture of how that happened, it'll be helpful to know when it began. Did it begin in Berlin towards the end of the 18th century, as we've been taught, as many have been taught, or were there trends that began much earlier, actually 300 years earlier? So many, many uh, scholars have written about this. Uh, I personally I read a lot of Shmuel Feiner, who has contributed much to the understanding of this over the last few decades. Others, too. I've primarily read several of his books, so that's what uh, that's what I recommend. But there's many, many others as well. Olga Litvak I've read as well. She's uh, excellent. And others, there's plenty of others who've written on the on the topic. So, what is the... What is the um, it's also important to understand history is, not, is a process. It's, it's, it's generally a process. It's generally not sudden. History is complex and nuanced. History is not black and white. 
So to say that it was one person in one city in in Germany in in one time that you know boom that's what that's what it is. There's the before and there's the after is, is obviously uh, you know an oversimplification of the process, and therefore we have to see it much more as a long centuries long process because modernity the the modern era uh, which begins uh, you know approximately 500 years ago, for several reasons. Obviously, these classifying eras uh, into... It's, it's an artificial classification. Historians just use it as a tool to help us understand it better. It's obviously artificial because we don't instantly enter into one era. There's obviously reasons why we consider uh, the modern era to have begun 500 years ago. And from a Jewish perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense because the Spanish expulsion took place then. So it's a major break in Jewish history, and that and that leads directly to our topic. Um, first of all, there's always the impact from the general society. There's the beginnings of secularization in the European uh, general society in the centuries leading up to the French Revolution. Um, these trends impact the Jewish minority in Europe. Um, there's this general societal shift away from the religious-based identity, which had been you know, Catholic identity, a Christian identity uh, throughout the Middle Ages, and the beginning of the modern era, the Renaissance, and then the Enlightenment, and then the French Revolution, rise of nationalism. So identity shifts away in the modern era from religion, which was the primary identity for you know over a thousand years, to new forms of human identity, um, rise of science and research and, and, and different, different ideas and political changes and economic changes that lead to secular ideas and secularization of the general society in Europe. So there's this general societal trend, and since the Jewish people never live in a vacuum, of course they're going to be uh, influenced from that. Um, and secularization and assimilation, enlightenment, haskala, all contribute to the modern search for Jewish identity. So there's obviously external and internal influences, um, which I speak about often. There are these four major ex external factors, political emancipation, which takes place later on, economic changes, which is already happening in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. Technological advancement, the printing press, which is already happening at this point, and then immigration, which we more associate with the 19th century, as far as its sheer numbers is concerned, but it begins already in the 15th, 16th century because of the Spanish expulsion. And the great, the great, the largest Jewish community in the world, the Spanish diaspora, goes spreads out all over the place, in Europe, into the Ottoman Empire, and even into the New World. So those four external factors uh, lead to the confrontation with modernity, and collectively, the external factors, of course, have a much more significant direct impact on Jewish secularization than any internal Jewish changes in the form of enlightenment, reform, haskalah, nationalism, which are products of the 18th and 19th centuries. So, 
If we would focus on that earlier time period, uh, from the 1500s through the 1700s, uh, three centuries, the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, so we're going to be focused primarily on what the Spanish expulsion caused, all these expellees spreading out all over the world, conversos, in other words, Spanish Jews who instead of being expelled had chosen conversion, and some of them lived as crypto-Jews in Spain or Portugal, Portuguese Jews, um, and then left the Iberian Peninsula and rejoined Jewish communities. There's traveling Jews, traveling Jews from the, from the Iberian Peninsula, from Portugal or Spain, where they have to live as secretly as conversos, and they engage in commerce in other places, and they come to Jewish communities in the Mediterranean basin, in Amsterdam, or the New World. And the basis of almost all pre-Enlightenment secularization, or even pre-Enlightenment enlightenment, as it were, was based on this Sephardic diaspora experience. The expulsion dispersed this Jewish community all over, and there, there was a wealthy community, cultured community, an educated community, and they have commercial ties everywhere, both with other Jews and with conversos, and with Jews living as Catholics back in Portugal, and with Catholics. Um, and then you have, like I said, the conversos returning to Jewish communities or attempting to return to Jewish communities, but being completely ignorant of Jewish life and custom and traditions. Um, and sometimes you have the opposite, conversos returning to Catholicism or even returning to Spain or going back and forth and living double lives. When they're living in Amsterdam, they're living as Jews. When they're living in Portugal, they're living as Catholics. And then you have within the same families, familial and commercial ties between Portuguese Jews, conversos, and in between. So you have all types of, of these Jews living with different levels of Jewish observance and all living together, kind of, in the same community network and community ties. The marriage is seen as a, a business uh, uh, connection, so it's a commercial connection. So you don't mind if the person you're marrying is a Jew who now is Catholic, is a Jew who is a converso, or is a Jew who's still a Jew as long as it strengthens the business ties. That's quite common at that time. So this is a, a very important and very important uh, factor that leads to enlightenment and secularization within the Jewish communities of that part of the world. And this is the 1500s, 1600s, hundreds of years before Mendelssohn and Berlin. And another overlooked element in all of this is that this is the age of exploration, the new world, the transatlantic commerce. You have to remember that the French Revolution follows the American Revolution. It comes afterwards. European Enlightenment was enabled by the Enlightenment in the colonies. Transatlantic trade strengthens Enlightenment ideas. If that was true in general society, it was definitely true among the Portuguese Jewish communities of the New World and in London Amsterdam and the Mediterranean, Italy, and places like that. Even more so is these Portuguese who were exposed to, read, and engaged in Enlightenment literature and ideas. So the 
Real Jewish enlightenment and beginning of secularization is among these Sephardic diaspora communities hundreds of years before it took place in in Berlin. And Amsterdam might be the perfect example of that. The Spanish-Portuguese Jewish community in Amsterdam who are engaging in international commerce during the Age of Exploration. A very unique place. It's a center of liberalism. Jews escape there in droves because they're allowed to practice their religion openly. If I had to choose a city to replace Berlin as the real birthplace of Jewish secularism, it would be Amsterdam. This is where Uriel de Costa, um, who lives, who was born approximately in 1585, in in not in Amsterdam, he moves there, right? And he's there. He's living as a as as a Catholic in in Spain or Portugal, I remember even at this point. And he dies in 1640. He doesn't die. He commits suicide. He shoots himself with a revolver in 1640 in Amsterdam, and he. You know, is exposed to his Jewish identity while still living in Spain, and he studies the Bible, the Old Testament, and that's his exposure to Judaism. And then, when he joins the Jewish community in Amsterdam, he's he's disappointed by what he understood as the belief system of the Jewish people and the way Jewish society behaves and the way Jew, rabbinic Judaism, which he had not been aware of, which he did not know about is practiced in, in, in practical halacha. And he and he writes heretical ideas and expresses them, and he's excommunicated, and he recants, and he apologizes, and he goes back, and there's a humiliating ceremony where which he has to go through. To, to, he receives lashes in the synagogue, and he has to lie down in front of the entrance, and they step over him or step on him. And uh, he gets very disillusioned, depressed, he's excommunicated again, and then it leads to his suicide. But he publishes all these works, which are considered heretical works. He's a tortured soul, he's a problematic individual. And um, and uh, he's, he's really a story, he's really you know an episode in his own merit. Um, but he, he begins to express these ideas, and of course he's immediately, and this is in Amsterdam, he's immediately followed by... Baruch Spinoza, Benedict Spinoza, probably the, probably the most famous of them all. And he lives from 1632 and 1677, and he's, of course, in Amsterdam as well. They even overlap for a few years. He's a, Spinoza's a young child when, when de Costa dies. Um, so that's Amsterdam, and that those ideas spread, and there's all this in the Amsterdam Jewish community. Another good example, besides for Amsterdam, is England. England, London, might be the first real secular Jewish community in the world. I mean, it wasn't all secular, obviously. It's quite a strong Orthodox Jewish community in England. This is after Cromwell allows them back in, which I discussed in the London podcast, the Bevismarck Synagogue. It's a very strong Orthodox Jewish community. But at the same time, there's quite a significant secular Jewish community in London. It might be one of the earliest or the earliest uh, Jewish secular Jewish communities in, in the modern era. Um, and someone who brings it all together in his personality and the way he combated this early secularism and tried to defend orthodoxy and orthodox practice was a London rabbi named uh, Rabbi David Nieto. He lived, born in 1654, passed away in 1728. So he lives smack in the middle of this time period. When he dies in 1728, that's when... Uh, I don't know if Mendelssohn's even born yet. If he is, he's a little child. He combines it all, this David Nieto. 
And he really can be seen as someone who defines this whole era and geographic space. His life story is a prism to this pre-Berlin, pre-Mendelssohn, early age of secularism. Nieto grows up in Livorno in Italy to a prominent Sephardic family, descendants of conversos. He lived in Venice and Rome. He studied in the Padua University, becomes a doctor. He studies philosophy. He'd be, he'd practice as a physician, as a philosopher, as a mathematician, astronomer, a poet, and more. He also studied to become a rabbi while he was in Padua, and he received his rabbinical ordination. Returns to his hometown of Livorno, where he serves as a rabbi, as a dayan, as a preacher, magid. In 1701, he was hired by the Sephardic community of London as their rabbi, the Orthodox community. In 1704, he was accused of, of, uh, of I don't know to call it Spinozism, to be a follower of, of Spinoza, I guess like pantheism or atheism, seeing God in nature, tzimtzum, that kind of stuff. Uh, basically, it means following the philosophy and beliefs and worldview of, of Spinoza, which was considered heresy, obviously. This was what he was accused of. He had published a pamphlet in Spanish clarifying his position, and he was exonerated of all wrongdoing by the Chacham Tzvi, um, Tzvi Ashkenazi, the great rabbi of Hamburg, the father of the Ivitz. Shortly afterwards, Rabbi David Nieto was not a heretic at all. He was quite an orthodox rabbi, quite a Torah scholar. He never shied away from controversy and gained quite a reputation combating Sabbatianism, followers of Shabsait Svi, which was quite prevalent at this time in the early 1700s. The most prominent instance of this was when he actively opposed Nehemia Chayun, the well-known Sabbatian and controversial figure, and, he, and uh, Rabbi David Nieto joined forces with the renowned fighters against Sabbatianism at that time, the Chacham Tzvi, who I just mentioned, and Ramay Shechagiz of Yerushalayim. And uh, Rabbi uh, Reb, um, Reb David Nieto wrote books against Chayun's works. Another issue he, Reb Nieto had to contend with at this time was, in his rabbinical capacity at that place and time, was the issue of conversos returning to the community, which was a common challenge that Jewish communities of Western Europe had to face in the Mediterranean basin, had to face and were confronted with in the centuries following the expulsion from Spain and Portugal, because these were essentially secular Jews living as Christians, not having any knowledge whatsoever of Jewish law and custom, who now wanted to rejoin the Jewish community. And what was the status, What was their status and how would they rejoin? And then there's what he's most probably most famous for, Rabbi Nieto, in his long-term legacy, he wrote a sefer uh, which was called the Kuzari Sheni, which provided the basis of the tradition of the oral law, the Torah Shabal Peh, and how that's inseparable from from the Torah Shabiksa, from the written law. And who's he writing against? Officially, he was writing against Karaites. Was he really writing against Karaites? There weren't that many Karaites in London at the time, or Amsterdam, or, or that part of the world, probably not. More likely that he was writing against the legacy of Uriel de Costa, who I just mentioned before, because de Costa's uh, uh, um, issue was with rabbinic Judaism, and here Rabbi Nieto is defending rabbinic Judaism and tradition, so and also to assist conversos who struggled with this idea. So, in summary, 
we have all the elements here in Rabbi Nieto's life and career of him contending with the pre-Berlin, pre-Mendelssohn secularization uh, um, of the Jewish people in the story of, uh, reflected in the story and career of Rabbi Nieto. The whole Spanish-Portuguese Jewry, conversos, Italy, sciences and medicine, Amsterdam, England, the Costa, Sabbatianism, Spinoza, and he's combating it all. And he's even suspected of it at one point. So that this is it. And uh, I mean, that's what I'm getting to with Italy. Italian Jewry, including the rabbinate, um, had always had this positive attitude towards outside knowledge and exposure and outside influence. But there's early secularization in northern Italy as well. Trieste, northern Italy, in the 1600s, 1700s. So what was considered later on in the 18th and 19th century, it was considered Haskalah in Central Europe in the 18th century and in Eastern Europe in the 19th century to, to be exposed to um, outside knowledge, to science, to, uh, to incorporate scientific uh, knowledge and literature and university education was considered Haskalah in Central Europe in the, 19, in the 18th century, in Jewish communities, and in Eastern Europe in the 19th centuries. And yet, for hundreds of years, it was de rigueur for Orthodox Jews, Orthodox rabbis, Orthodox world-class scholars to be, and very religious Jews in Italy, for hundreds of years, it was normal for them to, you know, have that exposure to secular knowledge, to general knowledge, to the sciences, to be physicians, to be all that. So that means that we somehow have to understand why Italian Jewry was different. They kind of have their own story and how it exists like that for hundreds of years. And the other hand, Italian Jewry lost its prominence as a major center of Jewish life uh, from the 18th century and on with the beginning of secularization. Um, and I mentioned also, and it's an important part of the story, is the spread of Sabbatianism, of Shabzite Svi and his followers. That also contributes to sec- the early secularization, pre-Mendelssohn, Frankists, pre-Mendelssohn. Even within Germany, there's pre-Mendelssohn, the whole role of the court Jews in Germany. Um, Yehudei Chatzer in Hebrew, the role of court Jews were these prominent Jews, primarily in finance and banking, Germany and other countries in Central Europe wasn't only Germany. They and their families, this was a class society, so if they're not in the merchant class anymore, they're given titles because of their status and wealth, so they're part of a different class. Their kids can't marry regular Jews anymore. Their wealth and title and, and, and social standing and educational norms make it that they're intermarrying, they're secularizing. They're going to university. They're allowed to live in other places that regular Jews aren't. So court Jews and their families and their social circles, their influence, they're early secular Jews way before Mendelssohn as well. So in that context, there's also the role of doctors, physicians, what they play in early secularization. Um, So there's a lot to talk about and a lot more to talk about. Um, But for literally about 300 years, primarily because of the Spanish expulsion, and the Spanish-Jewish diaspora in places like Amsterdam, London, Italy, um, and the role of Shabzai Tzvi and his followers 
um, court Jews, like I said, and their followers, all that taken together, we have from the 1500s and on a slow but steady growing of Jewish secularization, which um, only continues to grow in the 18th and 19th centuries down to this very day. So this was a little bit about the early years of Jewish secularization. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips, sponsorships and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.